The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. and welcome to Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Swinging through issue 19 without the safety net like the Flying Graysons, I'm Michael. Adam is stranded in 2099, so joining us tonight is a returning guest to the show. You might remember him from episode 9 and our Generation X TV movie special. Please welcome back to the show, Steven Sapellis. Hello, very excited to be here. And these are big shoes to fill. Uh, let me tell you, I, I'm personally a little nervous, and uh, I, I kind of look at it like this show, when it comes to the way it's structured, Adam is kind of like Johnny Carson, and I'm sort of like his Ed McMahon, or even probably a better analogy is he's Conan O'Brien, and I'm Andy Richter. I'm there, I might have a few funny quips here and there, but otherwise, I really have no idea what's going on half the time. So, <laughs> so. Yeah, well... And, uh, you know, I want to retitle this show Two Guys from Long Island, and we can just talk about pizza and bagels and that exactly. time Steve Gutenberg in the mall and all that kind of stuff. So Exactly. That's I, Sorry, Adam. You're out of here. Hit the road. <laughs> no more comics. So let's just talk about Steve Gutenberg. Steve Gutenberg, uh, 90s references on Long Island, you mm -hmm. know, all kinds of stuff with that. Adidas, tearaway pants, you know. <laughs> We all had him. We all had him. We sure did. So luckily, Adam left me a time stream message that I hope will provide some insight onto how to keep this episode on track. September 15th, 2099. Dear Michael, I'm writing this letter to you from days of future past. As you'll recall, at the end of episode 18, I was snatched out of the Wizard's Prime timeline by Doctor Doom and taken to the year 2099, where I've been kept in a dungeon and pumped for information on the age of heroes, managing only to escape when I mentioned that chromium was a valuable precious metal of the 90s and he got distracted in researching its potential energy properties. I'm still working on how to find my way back to the show in 2020, especially since I found your solo attempt at recording episode 19 in the podcast archives and nearly puked. A mini episode is one thing, but the wizard's legacy must be maintained. Episode 19 is the only black mark on an otherwise mint condition record according to the obscure 90s comic book themed podcast historians. I implore you to contact past guest Steven Sapellis and get him to record at least a halfway decent version of episode 19. His obsession with the Generation X TV movie, Roger Corman's Fantastic Four, and love of Wizard Magazine will make him a fitting replacement until I can escape the world of 2099. Oh, and in case you were wondering, the Snyder Cut is old news here, as are the multiple Academy Awards it won upon its release. It's totally worth signing up for an HBO Max subscription. Oh, wow. Hopefully HBO Max is listening and we can get some, some uh, you know, kickbacks from this. I got we'll it. We're good. Till we meet again, my friend, and good luck. P.S. Seriously, don't mess this up. P.S.S. Like, please, at least read one page of the issue before getting on the mic. P.S.S.S. I might just do it myself. 
end of line. Well, I promised him one one page. I read about maybe five or six pages. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. I did one of those things. I did bring Steven here. So at least we got part of that going. <laughs> and I hope that the Fantastic Four 2099 can save uh, Adam from the clutches of Doom 2099 while yeah, he's out there in the future. Let's keep our fingers crossed on that. <laughs> So, uh, so you know, Michael, since I've been here before, I don't want to bore everyone with my origin story, but I do want to ask, where were you when this issue came out in March of 1993? Uh, I was in middle school. And I was also on the middle school wrestling team. Oh, I wow. Wasn't, I, I wasn't very good, but I was on the wrestling team. Um, and uh, I also, what was I doing? I think I was playing, it was right, right, right before, like, I had just, actually the year before, I had just quit uh, Little League Baseball because I used to constantly play the position of left out. And... <laughs> um, and so that's why I decided to go to wrestling. And um, I was also playing tennis at the time. Uh, I was playing JV tennis in in the high school. And uh, other than that, I mean... So hold on. You were playing sports and reading comic books? Yeah, I was. You were like a unicorn of, of middle school in the 90s. I was. I was. Also, the girls didn't really like me, so I had nothing <laughs> else to do. So. <laughs> well, let me ask you this, because this is my, my big memory of March of 1993. Uh, was what was called the storm of the century, which hit the East Coast, including Long Island, yes, and covered us in right. like a foot of snow. No, it was days. two feet. It was two feet of snow. It was, was like it twenty. It was twenty six inches of snow, because I remember this because my dad, uh, his construction company, they do snow plowing in the winter, and I used to have to go out and go with him and and like my uncles to plow parking lots and stuff like that but because i couldn't drive a truck at you know 12 or 13 <laughs> years old uh i was given a shovel and i used to go and shovel the sidewalks and that particular year the snow was so big i couldn't get the shovel to dig out the snow fast enough and uh i remember the snow mounds lasted until like mid-may because they were so big they were gigantic i remember driving to my grandmother's house in queens and they had plowed cars underneath the snow so you when you're driving through you feel like a pinball going down a row like yeah. you, you couldn't see the street from uh you know from or you can see the sidewalk from the street that's how high it was piled up i i actually have two comic book related memories from this winter snowstorm uh okay. first was a tree fell in my backyard and crushed our shed and in our shed my brother and i had this stack of wolverine comics they were just destroyed beyond belief, really? uh, which is fitting because this is a Wolverine issue of. Uh, it is kind of fitting. Go yeah. figure. And the second one was my birthday party was scheduled for that uh, weekend. Uh, it was going to be at a dollar theater. We were going to see the Muddy Ducks, which was, you know, I mean, this is as 1993 as a story gets. Absolutely. Uh, and the reason I was so bummed that it was delayed was that my friend Chris had bought me a bunch of the Toy Biz X-Men toys. 
and I knew which ones he bought me. And I was so bummed that I just couldn't get my hands on them. Uh, and so, yeah, that's what I remember. I couldn't get my Banshee figure in time. <laughs> that's pretty funny. It's, it's funny you mentioned the Mighty Ducks because I remember when everybody went to go see that movie, all the kids that I kind of grew up around, whatever, everybody like all of a sudden got into hockey instantly. <laughs> yes. And, every, and everyone was buying inline sk- skates. Mm-hmm. And we were all buying hockey sticks and we were playing street hockey. I myself, I had bought a, a knockoff pair of rollerblades from, I think, Caldor or something like that. Sure. And the um, on, the, on the in the universe. Exactly. And um, and so. I had like the my problem with rollerblading was I had one foot that worked and the other one that didn't would, wouldn't go anywhere. So it just would kind of like spin around in a circle and I couldn't really get myself going ever. And it was more or less my friends would be like, OK, he can't actually move on rollerblades. We're just going to stick him in goalie. And I just uh-huh. would sit there with a giant. Remember those like like uh, models, pl- plastic street pads you used to get for yep. for the yep. goalies. Yeah, that was me. I couldn't really move. I just wore these big pads and try to like keep my body to keep the puck or the ball from going in the, in the net. That was basically my memory because everybody else could skate. and I could not skate. We would do like the roller skating ring things. And I'd be like, uh, I'll go once around. And I was like holding onto the side the whole time. Yeah. That was the classic position for kids who, who couldn't play hockey. Cause I always got stuck in the goal as well. I hated sports <laughs> oh. completely, but I wanted to hang out with my friends and they'd be like, all right, stand in the goal. And I was like, I don't have pads. They're like, shut up and stand there. <laughs> Just be quiet. Yeah. Just hold, hold the stick and wear a mask. Hold yeah. And don't lose a tooth. <laughs> they don't go easy on you in seventh grade on Long Island. No, they, they don't. Uh, oh. they, they're they're hardcore. They are hardcore. That's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And speaking of hardcore, uh, should we go right into Willie Lumpkin's mailbag? We sure could. We have quite the hardcore uh, message from somebody that, Stephen, why don't you read the message and I'll read the response. Okay, I'll, I'll play uh, Carl C. Pop as best I can. All right, best guys, I'm here. Whoa. <laughs> whoa. Whoa, hey, you're here. What, <laughs> what the? What's going on? <laughs> Did you guys already read my letter? I did read your letter. Oh, my goodness. Uh. So let's dive into Rob and Todd's Hype Machine. Michael, come in, Michael. I've got a time transmission open for just a moment while uh, Doom does his daily rant against Reed Richards. But I had to get through to you to ask you one thing. What did you do? I get trapped in the future for one episode, leaving you in charge, and suddenly we're getting blocked by Rob Liefeld on Twitter. To be fair, he started it. But it's social media. Here today gone tomorrow am i right oh yeah well the 2099 podcast archives now report that at 9 48 a.m on september 20th 2020 rob liefeld blocked at wizards comics on twitter calling us a dipshit account that worships wizard 
it set off a chain of events that led to, let me, let me see here, uh, increased subscription rates and listener feedback stating that Rob overreacted and that they have unfollowed him. Oh, so uh, I guess what I meant to say was, keep up the good work, guys. So I guess he won't be sending you a Christmas card this year. That's for sure. But wait, where does that leave our Robin Todd's Hype Machine segment? How do we move forward? Well, I guess we could always change it to Jim and Todd's Hype Machine and retroactively erase Rob from the Wizards continuity. So welcoming you to our long-running segment, Jim and Todd's Hype Machine, I'm Adam, and here's the score. After 19 issues of Wizard, Todd is coming in strong at 105 mentions, but still reigning supreme, it's Jim Lee at 120 mentions. Congratulations, Jim. Oh, I, okay, Doom is coming, guys. I, 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 gotta, I gotta go. What? What? Wait, where are you, go? where are you going? No! <laughs> <laughs> what a day for you guys. I'm, I'm so excited. This is it's so weird. Like, and, and it was nothing to do with me. It's all Adam, but I'm taking the heat for this one. <laughs> well, look, well, I just can't believe that, like, this guy's on, like, he's a millionaire, like, uh, like your past guest said. He's on Twitter with 30-year-old gripes about Wizard Magazine. <laughs> That's how you spend your day? I don't. That's crazy to me. I, it's so crazy. All right. So the Carl C. Pop letter? Yeah. All right. So let's let's just re, we'll reintroduce it just in case. So, mm-hmm. so let's dive into Willie Lumpkin's mailbag. All right. So, dear wizard, I have a confession. Although I buy wizard regularly, I all but hate it. The obvious questions are one, why do I buy it? And two, why do I dislike it? I'll attempt to answer both. I buy wizard almost exclusively for the prism bordered trading cards, parentheses, (laughs) but I have a complaint about that as well. Surely there must be a way for you to enclose cards without sealing the bag right over the card as to permanently crease it. End parentheses. I, ha- I have only bought one issue without an enclosed card. Number eight, with this magnificent Portacio Bishop poster. So, why do I not love this publication as much as so many of your readers seem to? Well, there are many reasons. The first is that the articles are so poorly written. But since Larry Durkich of Edmonton so succinctly addressed this problem in issue number 16, I'll just refer you to his letter. Parentheses again, a notable exception is Peter David's piece on becoming a comic book writer. But Peter is, after all, a professional writer, whereas you guys, obviously, are not. (laughs) A second reason you have found disfavor with me is your preoccupation with image. Sure, some of their stuff is noteworthy, but some is mediocre at best. Yet you treat each new image release as though it is the comic to buy. Face it, image has a long way to go before it reaches Marvel status. And many of us would like to see some of our favorite characters, parentheses, Gambit, Bishop, Psylocke, etc., on prison-boarded cards, too. And he goes on. 
Then there's this ludicrous practice of attempting to make a price guide into a bona fide collectible. I have actually gone into comic shops and found back issues of Wizards, some without cards, parentheses, exclamation point, <laughs> carrying premium prices. I know you will probably try to blame this on retailers, but surely you are partly responsible. Case in point, your last two installments of collecting in the 90s have dealt exclusively with Wizard. Having said all that, I'll try to end on a positive note. Thanks for the Predator vs. Magnus cards, and I'm looking forward to seeing the poster in issue number 18 of Marvel's Spidey, Venom, and Carnage. Signed, Carl C. Pop, Springfield, Missouri. Wow. <laughs> this oh, guy, boy. yeah, yeah. Like, seriously. I mean, I don't disagree with him in the, like, overly hyping of image. I, I get that. But, like, the, he used a word in there that, not just mediocre, but there's another word that he used that I was like, wow, this guy's really, like, a wordsmith. <laughs> well, the, <laughs> there was the thing, a second reason you have found disfavor with me. That there was disfavor. <laughs> I know, I like, as, though, as though Carl C. Pop is... <laughs> Is this, you know, monumental figure in the comic book world that we should all kiss his butt. Seriously. So here's Wizard's response. Carl, for someone who hates our magazine and buys it for nothing more than the trading cards, you know an awful lot about the content of the book. By the comments you make, it's fairly easy to see that you read the articles you hate. So I imagine you really don't hate them all that much. Admit it, Carl. You love us. Want to join the cool corpse? Preoccupation with image? We report and give profiles of the of the more exciting projects in the comic market. And image is a big chunk of what's exciting. Though they do get considerable coverage, our only infatuation is with Cindy Crawford. Again, <laughs> This is 1993, folks. This does not translate to 2020. This is not my words. This is Wizards' words in 1993. I have to preface that. This is a whole magazine for kids. Yes, yes. Um, As for the cards, we don't have a Marvel license, so you won't be seeing any Marvel Wizard cards anytime soon. And we're really well aware of the polybag problem. We're working on it. And finally... I think Wizard is a little bit more than just a price guide. If stores want to sell back issues of premium prices, I take that as a compliment. Fair enough. Okay. It's funny that they're complaining about the poly bag, but we recently had an interview where one of the people were saying that they were stuffing the poly bag with the AOL discs for so many years. It's like, (laughs) all right, pick a lane, Wizard. All right, I get it. Fair enough. Very interesting argument. I heard you did a little research on Carl afterwards. I, I did, sadly. This is this is just speaks to, to me because I was like, what kind of a man writes into a magazine to complain about the magazine while also talking about how much he reads the magazine and <laughs> wants them to do things that he wants specifically? Like he loves the cards and he wants them to do the characters he likes. It's almost like going to a nice restaurant, eating the entire meal, and then walking up to the cook and being like, let me tell you why that sucked. <laughs> It's like, well, you ate the whole thing. I didn't hear you complaining when you were eating it. It's it's like the Seinfeld episode of, you know, George Cassandra going, it's like like dealing with an old man sending back soup in a kitchen in a deli. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I did do my research into Carl Pop, and I found that he is still, I believe it's still the same guy, because it is a Carl Pop from Springfield. Uh, he's still writing letters to the editor, but this time in his local 
newspaper and he's just commenting on local news. So I guess this is his bag. And <laughs> um, I had a college roommate who used to sit in his in his room in our in our like suite in the dark in the corner reading the New York Times and just shaking his fist to the ceiling and be like, damn you, damn you. And this is the kind of guy I picture Carl to be the same guy, just sitting there with a newspaper and like a cigar on a rocking chair on his front porch, just cursing at the news. Yeah, yeah. And the thing was, like, there used to be a filter for guys like this. Like, I didn't have to hear Carl Pop's opinion that often. But now, like, with the internet everybody's a Carl Pop. Everybody's a Carl Pop. Absolutely. Twitter's full of Carl Pops. I hope Carl Pop finds us and starts tweeting at us and be like, I heard what you said about me, Wizards Magazine podcast. I'll tell you what I think about your show. I've listened to every word of it. Great. Listen to it. Come on, please. I would love it. I've listened to every episode and I hate it. I hate it all. You guys don't know what you're talking about, you young (laughs) rapscallions. Well, Carl Uh, Pop, you're a hero. You're you're my fan of the I'm I'm a fan of yours, Carl Pop. So let's dive into the Wave Riders Wayback Machine for March of 1993. Believe it or not, this was actually a big month for movies. We'll kick things off with one that stars a future Batman as a Hitler youth by day and a Lindy Hopper swing dancer by night. We're talking about Swing Kids. Steven, have you ever seen this movie? I have not. My one memory is, uh, as I mentioned, my birthday party this year was uh, at the Dollar Theater to see Muddy Ducks. And one of the benefits of having your party there was uh, they gave you a year's free pass to the movies with your entire family. And so one day I'm sitting at home and my dad, who knows nothing about movies and knows nothing about TV, he calls me up and he goes, hey, uh, they're showing uh, Swing Kids at the Dollar Theater. You want to go? I'm like, Dad, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> like, what is Swing Kids? So like, I looked it up. I'm like... No, I have zero interest in this movie. Yeah. Like Hitler Youth? Like why why would I, I'm twelve? Why would I want to see this? <laughs> I want to see this. So, why would I care? Yeah, exactly. So I've never seen it, but But it's, it's kind it's of funny. That, man. It it does. And you know, what's funny about this movie, I, I've seen it maybe once a long, long time ago. I do re- remember it by looking at some of the pictures, but because Christian Bale was in this and in Newsies, mm-hmm. where they're both dancing movies, I constantly get the images of Newsies mixed up with this movie and go back and forth. But I do remember like this, like Hitlery kind of reference. But I just don't get it, and I don't. It doesn't translate to me. And it's one of those movies that I was like, if I never had to see it again, I wouldn't miss it. I forgot about it till I read what was came out this month. So I was like, eh, okay, whatever. It is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Not, so, not much not much to say about Swing Kids. Yeah, not much to say about Swing Kids. So the next movie that came out, which was on March 12th, saw a release date of an alien abduction fever in the mid-1990s. This movie starred Robert Patrick, D.B. Sweeney, Henry Thomas, and James Garner. This is based, supposedly, 
on a true story by Travis Walton. This movie is Fire in the Sky. I remember this movie mostly from the commercials and the trailer of like the guy in a field and the blue light shooting down and like the the arms kind of draped back and and, and that kind of imagery. I can't say I've actually seen this movie, to be honest with you. Uh, This movie terrified me. Like I like those trailers that you're describing gave me nightmares. Like they did such a good job at promoting this movie. And they basically just showed scenes from the abduction. And like, like, you know, kids in my school would, would have seen it. And I would just be cornering, cornering them like, oh, so what happened? Like, <laughs> is it scary? Like, what happens when he goes in the UFO? It, like, it was such a mystery. And then I remember around this time, this, like, coincided with all these, like, alien abduction stories in the news. Roswell right? was big. Like, yes. Whole, yeah. And then, like, even Newsday, which was, like, our local newspaper, did a whole interview with people who said they'd been abducted. And, like, I read this like an idiot. And I would, like, stay awake at night staring at the foot of my bed just certain that aliens were going to be there at any second to abduct me. I don't know why me in particular, but that's what I thought. Uh, And then I finally did see it at a sleepover when it came out on video. And it's really not that scary. Yeah. It's it's mostly a melodrama um, with a little bit bit of like, you know, this kind of UFO stuff, but it's, it's a pretty good movie. I, I definitely recommend it. I think I've seen it once now that I'm thinking about it. I think I saw it once but this is probably like in college or like late into high school because I too was uh, was very scared of it because of the commercials and the trailers. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, I don't ever want to see this movie. This is going to give me night. And it, I too was was like, you know, are they going to come? Like if I ever saw like a, a car drive through and like a blue light through my window, in my bedroom was like, oh no, they're here. They're coming <laughs> to get me. So Yeah, yeah. I, every time. Yeah, that's what, that's, that's what I thought too. <laughs> every time. So finally... On March 17th, we were treated to the third and final installment of one of the most popular film series in the 1990s. I'm talking about a movie which is referred to as The Feudal Fable, and it is also known as Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3. I know a lot of people don't like this movie because it's so different from the first two films, but I particularly kind of enjoy it for its silliness and its campiness, and I liked taking the turtles someplace else, and I thought that was kind of a cool take on it. What's your thoughts on it? So I I was super excited for this movie. I loved the first two Ninja Turtles movies. This was the first movie that I saw without my parents. I went with like my two friends. So again, like my my expectations were very high. I hated it. I hated it right away. Really, like, you hated it right away. It was, I, and I think it was like the first movie that I that I just hated. You know, because when you're a kid, just going to the movies is fun. Uh, this was just. I thought it looked cheap. I thought the story. I was like, why do I want to see the Ninja Turtles in feudal Japan? <laughs> like, why is that interesting to me? Like, show me Rat King. Show me Krang. And like you know, by this point, uh, the costumes looked awful. They did, uh, look, they did not look as good as the first movie, that's for sure. No, and like they've got you know the masks over their faces so that yeah. they, they don't even have to move the mouths. Yeah, um, that's how low the budget had had become. Splinter kind of looks like a Chuck E. Cheese robot. And then the yeah. thing was, I saw it, I hated it, and then my little brother didn't come with me. And the next week, my mom made me take him to see it. No, and I was like, no, George, like you don't want to see it. It's terrible. He's like, no, 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 I kind of want to see it. And you're so, gonna regret it, kid. Yeah, I was like, dude, it's it's a bad movie. Like, please, just trust me. He's like, no, no, no. I want to see. No, I like the Ninja Turtles, and so I had to see it twice in one week. Oh and, no. Yeah, and I was like, see, George, see, 
It's a bad movie. It is a bad movie. It is a bad movie. I will agree. I don't know. There's something about it. I just, I think as a kid at that time, just seeing anything that was like a cartoon come to life, I was into and I was okay with it. Yes, it is nowhere near as good as Go Ninja, Go Ninja, Go or anything like that from the previous two films. But all right, I'll I'll let it slide for what it is. It was definitely low budget. Looking at it now, I'm like, oh man, it was it was not a well done film. But you know, whatever. It it made it made a couple bucks. They did what they had to do. The the guys that were behind the costumes probably needed a paycheck, and so they said, <laughs> all right, you know, let's do it. So, yeah, yeah, whatever. It is what it is. In comparison, though, I think the the trilogy of the '90s is still marginally better than the two films that came out in the 20 teens oh yeah oh i'd rather watch ninja turtles 3 than any of those new movies yeah agree as as much as i just pooped on ninja turtles 3 (laughs) give me it any day over the the new ones that just came out so overall there was a bunch of movies that came out this month so we mentioned swing kids also there was mad dog and glory which came out on march 5th there was Amos and Andrew on the 5th. We mentioned Fire in the Sky. We mentioned Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3. And another movie that I actually really like is Point of No Return. This is like the closest version to an American-style La Femme Nikita. Yes. And and I like this movie. I thought it was a lot of fun. I thought it was one of those movies that if it had a bigger budget or if it was redone today would have been massive i just think it was like people weren't ready for it at the time that's why it didn't do as well in the box office that it probably could have done yeah i mean i think i saw it on usa i feel yeah I feel like it was they they used to run it a lot uh and yeah for a while there in the 90s i feel like bridget fonda was doing a lot of really cool movies and this was yeah. one of them so yeah it's it's a cool movie it's it shot really well really well yeah agreed no, like you just remember that iconic, like diving through the laundry chute scene is like it's fire behind her. I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool that they pulled that off. I like that. Yeah, yeah. And the poster, I remember like that poster and that billboard. Yeah. It, it was all over the place that summer. Or I'm sorry, oh, that March. Well, it's one of those movies that it probably could have come out in the summer, but it might not have done as well that particular summer because didn't Jurassic Park come out that summer? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it I did. Could, I could see why they probably pushed this to a little bit earlier because if like nobody's beating Jurassic Park, this they're like Steven Spielberg and dinosaurs. Oh, that's it. It's over. Oh summer man! Is... Did they try too? Because like Super Mario Brothers came out that summer, Cliffhanger, yeah. Last Action Hero. They were all decimated by the T Rex. Yeah, that's for sure. So now we we have a couple of music things that are kind of interesting, and we just mentioned Jurassic Park. So they released the soundtrack a couple months earlier on March 1st before the movie even hit theaters. And other than the title theme that you see in the beginning of the movie and, and basically plays throughout every Jurassic Park film, I couldn't name you one song out of that movie. (laughs) I wouldn't know the soundtrack at all. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is I I was looking through this um, and it's, it's interesting that it came out three months before the movie was released, which is so strange, but super strange. Uh, one of the track listings says T-Rex Rescue. So, like, if, <laughs> if you bought the CD, there's the ending for you. Yeah. Spoiler. Which, yeah, which happened um, when I bought the Phantom Menace soundtrack. It says Qui-Gon's Funeral on the back. No, does it really? Yes. So maybe John Williams, you know, could have tried renaming his song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Something a little bit more obscure. Seriously. 
What, <laughs> what are they thinking? That's pretty funny. The T-Rex so, eats people. Oh, what do you know? Yeah. They're, they're running and screaming. Here's a... <laughs> Bruce Willis oh. is Dead by John Williams. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So also on March 1st, the Cranberries released Everybody Else is Doing It, So Why Can't We? featuring the song Linger. And this was a, a pretty popular song for them for a while and until Zombie came out. But this was like a really popular song for a while. And you, you would hear this everywhere in that year, I feel like, for a while. Yeah, it was all over the radio. Do you have to let it linger? linger. <laughs> yeah, that was a big one. This next one, on March 5th, Green Jelly, the serial killer soundtrack. And it's serial spelt like, like breakfast cereal. I don't know this at all this is not on my radar at all have you even heard of this album yeah there's one song that you might know uh they do a version of little pig let me in and it's like a stop motion music video and it's very like hardcore rock little pig let me in Uh, probably if i watch it on youtube i would know it but yeah it's not ringing a bell (laughs) recently in in a uh to show what a good parent i am i showed it to my four my four-year-old son and (laughs) he loved it he thought it was hilarious yeah (laughs) That's but uh, it might not be 100% appropriate, but it's, it's uh, funny. Kids yeah, love the right. three little pigs, you know? I thought yeah. thought it worked. Fair enough. I'll let it. Yeah, I'll allow it. Fair <laughs> okay, enough. Okay, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so on March 23rd, the Butthole Surfers released Independent Worm Saloon, who was in my room last night, is the song that was like the hit, I guess. I, is that... The song, or is that the whole name of the album? I have I have no idea about the Butthole Surfers. Other than I knew their name just because it's such a ridiculous name. Yes. I, cu- I, I couldn't tell you a song that I know of theirs. And I don't know. This is what I found on the interwebs was Independent Worm Saloon, who was in my room last night. That huh. just sounds wildly inappropriate and some sort of strange induendo, and I don't know how to partake it, and I'm just going to move on. Lastly, though, is another song that was colossal in 1993. On March 30th, the band or hip hop group Onyx released their opening album or solo or debut album featuring the song Slam. And I know from at least my friends, when this song came out, every kid you could think of was getting basketball hoops in their front yards and they were lowering it to the eight foot height. So everybody could slam dunk. (laughs) (laughs) It was almost like, uh, the, the song, uh, if I could be like Mike. Yes. Where where every kid suddenly thought they had superpowers. Oh yeah, absolutely. Everyone was like, Oh, I I could fly. I could jump. Yeah. No problem. Did you also have a pair of the the Reebok pump sneakers? Well, no, I actually, so all of my friends had Reebok pumps. But like I said, my mother was a big Caldor shopper or uh, or uh, Buster Brown, where it was another big place we would frequent. Sure. And, and uh, so she got me the Converse knockoff pumps. And instead of the pump on the tongue, the pump was on the side of the sneaker. And so I would pump up the side of my sneaker around like the ankles, not the tongue. And all my friends would be like, what what is that that's not a pump i'm like no it's got a pump on it look see they're converse they're the same thing no they're not no they're not mike from 93 sorry bud 
Well, in your mom's defense, it's not like the Reebok pump actually made you jump higher, like the commercial said. They did not. They did not. But Cause still. Because I remember kids would like stop playing basketball and be like, yo, dude, one second, I got to pump up. And then you just see them <laughs> like, going down pump up. to pump up their sneakers. I got like, to pump up. Oh, yeah. Man. It's not helping you, Billy. You're not jumping nope. any higher. Sorry, dude. You're still <laughs> you're still four foot tall. You're not going to jump eight to eight feet. Sorry, pal. Good luck. They were ready, though. They were, they were, you know, ready to break that backboard. They sure were. So now let's dive into our table of contents. So the cover is a bifold cover of Wolverine and Sabretooth, who I recently was reminded on Twitter by several of our followers after missing it on a mini-episode quiz that his actual name is Victor Creed. I had totally forgotten that, other than I was, I've was i been recently reading the, the Hickman run of X-Men, and they don't call him Sabretooth anymore. They call him Creed. And I was like, oh, oh wow, okay, I get it now. Fine, whatever, <laughs> weird. Um, Illustrated by someone named Whitman, uh, who Garib reveals in his letter to the publisher really was Bart Sears. Um, The magazine quote reads, for those of you who are dying to know, Whitman is really Bart Sears. And now that Bart and now that Bart has gone freelance, he won't be using his pen name anymore. The last of Wizard Whitman covers. Dun dun dun. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it, it's a, yeah, it's a milestone. I guess so. <laughs> so what what do you got for us? What else is in this table of contents? So then we've got Palmer's picks, which features an interview with alternative comic book artist Rick Veach, who has committed himself to investigating some of the more disturbing aspects of comics in his book King Hell Heroica. And it says, fed up with the practices of mainstream companies, Veach formed his own publishing imprint called King Hell Press. The first venture was a black and white compilation called The One. After that, he created the King Hell universe where he could explore some of the darker facets of superheroes, which, you know, to us sounds a lot like the boys on Amazon. Absolutely. He wrote a book called Brat Pack about superhero sidekicks to show how absurd they are and portrayed them as racist, abused junkies with little to no morals. Uh, Okay. Uh, so Michael, does this sound like something that you'd want to read? Um, me, I, I think I would like to read it in the sense that I want to see how they were portrayed in the nineties, because it's kind of curious to see how they would illustrate this. It's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you want to go to the rack and like pick it up and look at it. But you also you like you know that it's probably like a nudie magazine. You don't know who's watching you. You're like, I don't know if I should be reading this. Is this appropriate? I don't know. Yeah. But it, who knows? <laughs> as, as someone who used to work at uh, at Midtown Comics, I always felt really weird about the nudie magazine rack and the nudie comic rack. <laughs> oh, I forgot they used to have that. Yeah. Oh boy. It was really yeah. it was really weird when someone would grab one of those. And actually, yeah. I guess I can tell the story now because he's dead. But. <laughs> <laughs> uh at one point michael jackson closed down the store and came and went up there and bought some of those no are you yep. for real i wasn't working there but i'd heard the rumor 
So no way. I'm letting all the secrets go tonight on the uh, wizard. Let it fly. There's no rules. Adam's not here. We can do what we want. He's stuck in the future. Who cares? Who cares? It's all going down from here, baby. This is it. So, okay. That's pretty interesting. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, Michael Jackson. I've met the owner of uh, Midtown Comics a couple times, and he's a pretty nice dude. Like, he's pretty chill. But... Oh man, to know that like the stories that they must have. Oh boy, that must. Be yeah, fantastic. yeah. I never. I, I was only there briefly before I got laid off. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, so I didn't see any celebrities. But yeah, it's uh it's a, it's a very well known place that gets a lot of uh, you know high volume customers. So yeah, I mean, if you're ever in New York post pandemic, there's three locations now. There's one in Midtown. There's one on the Upper East Side. There's one in downtown. I used to go to downtown all the time because I work in Brooklyn. I just hop on the subway and it's literally right there. But every time you go, any one of them is an experience. You don't know who you might see there. Like uh, I was there. Zach Levi was there a couple but when they were doing Shazam. Oh, nice. Uh, uh, Frank Miller goes there all the time. You know, it's interesting to see who pops into the place, which is pretty cool. Um, and a lot of diehard comic book fans. A lot of diehard comic books. will sit there and talk to you for hours. About oh, my God. Yeah. they yeah, and I was like, "Dude, I've got to work." Yeah, like I, I gotta, I gotta ring the register. You, you buying something, or are we talking about you know X Men here? I'd yeah, love to talk to you, but all right, great. So, anyway, in Wizard News, Revolutionary Comics is working on an exclusive Kiss series called Kiss Prehistory. This feels like an Adam story. This is, Adam's a big kid. He should be reading this. I don't know. We should better. We'll, 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 I'll, I'll read it in his stead. Um, also, <laughs> I, wonder, from, I wonder if he owns it. He might. He probably does. I wouldn't put it past him. If it shows up on our Instagram from the future, you'll know. Um, also, from Re- Revolutionary, the birth of Image Comics, an expose dealing with the creation of one of the most well-known independent comic publishers ever. The cover depicts Rob Liefeld, uh, Todd McFarlane, and Jim Lee toppling a house of cards with various Marvel well-knowns running for their lives. How weird is this book? Like, that's pretty weird. And you can actually get it. It's on eBay for $3 if you're really interested. I think I'm, I'm going to buy it right now. I, I'm kind of with you on that one. I kind of want to check that out. On to another rumored storyline, the death of Batman. Hmm, interesting. We all know that's not really what happens, but we'll 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 read what rumors Wizard is thinking is happening. According to the magazine, due to the overwhelming success of the death of Superman storyline, rumor has it that Batman is slated for an untimely demise sometime in 93 or 94. Knowing now what you know about Nightfall, would you have rather see Bruce Wayne die or what actually happened? I mean, I, I think Nightfall was really successful. I thought it was a really cool story, and I liked the way it tested Batman. I liked the way it brought in the Batman family. Azrael was not great, as no. I think we've all Agreed. figured out. Bane was pretty cool, you know, in terms of uh, almost like the doomsday one-off villains that come in to do a specific job. The next segment we had was Topsy Kirby. Tops Comics announced that they have signed a long-term agreement with legendary comic book artist Jack Kirby. As many well know, Kirby was a major creative force behind many 
of those characters who are household names today. He's granted Topps exclusive rights to his plethora of unused characters, concepts, and stories, which he created over the decades and never published. Four new titles based on two separate concepts, superheroes and supernatural adventures, will be launched. The Secret City Saga, try to say that five times fast. Uh, <laughs> the superhero portion will be preceded by three one-shot titles, Bombast, Night Glider, and Captain Glory. The three are members of a dead race who were awakened from suspended animation to save mankind. For the supernatural portion, there is a Satan Six, a mischief group from different periods in the past, stuck in limbo, who want to make hell their home. The cover of Satan Six number one will be a Jack Kirby and Todd McFarlane cover. What a matchup. Wow. So what are your thoughts about Jack Kirby in the 90s? I mean, I think I knew him as kind of this legendary figure who was revered by some of these guys. Yeah. But in terms of his workload, I didn't really read too much of it. I didn't see too much of it. Me neither. Like, I I, I just remember, like, the creation of the new gods and, like, mm -hmm. those looks, you know. His drawing of like, you know, Captain America back then and so on. And so, but like beyond just like the iconic just imagery of those early, early things. I, if you want to be honest with you, I thought he was already dead by this time. I didn't realize. But don't, <laughs> I, don't, well, I, don't tell that everybody. I'm going to get destroyed on Twitter for that one. But hey, whatever. You might get a flame on there. Um, I might. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest events that I remember from this time period is when Wizard announced his death. Yeah. And then I remember seeing like all these comic book creators talk about him and kind of getting a better understanding of his work. Like I obviously recognize his name from Captain America, Fantastic Four, X-Men, but like I couldn't put, I couldn't picture him in my head like I could picture Stan Lee. Right. Like, like I, you know, and I think that's just kind of who Jack Kirby was. I mean, he was just kind of this workhorse who but, yeah, uh, didn't, you know, you know, go for the limelight. I, you know, I have a history where I used to work for Apple, and it's one of those things where, like, if you think of Apple, you think of Steve Jobs. You often forget that Steve Wozniak was really like the true architect of Apple, and in a lot of ways, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby are very much the same sort of thing. Like. Stan Lee was the face of Marvel Comics and, you know, the the words of a lot of the characters that that we know and love. But Jack Kirby was the guy that actually brought those words to life in a lot of cases. Again, Jack Kirby's one of those guys where he's like an iconic figure that everyone kind of like idolizes up to. Like today, that guy might be, you know, Alex Ross. Like everyone looks like, oh, man, you, you can't measure, you know, a card against Alex Ross compared to anybody else. And Jack Kirby's kind of that same thing. Like he designed these characters that still hold similar resemblances to this day. And that's kind of significant. Truly. And, you know, the two of them never worked better than when they worked together. Agreed. And, you know, Stan Lee did stuff in the 90s too, wrote comic books, and they weren't as, as successful as his stuff in the 60s. 
And, you know, it was a shame, like, when you go back and reread some of these old wizards to see that their relationship had kind of fallen apart, you know, because they were such a powerhouse team. Right. And it's so sad that it just, you know, it ended in kind of like a bitter relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, and, you know, reading this, I'm just like, n- none of these stories, I might go back and, you know, read some of these Kirby in the 90s books, but they don't seem as interesting as, you know, the the stuff that we all know. Right, exactly. I mean, if if I ever get through my stack of comics that I'm so backlogged on now, I'd be interested in like maybe picking up, you know, this Satan six number one just to see that cover of a Jack Kirby, Todd McFarlane kind of a thing. But beyond that, I don't know how far I would go really into it, you know? Yes. Satan six did sound like the best one of the bunch. Yeah. Great title. It is a great title. It really is. But I wonder if it's kind of stolen from the Sinister Sticks, you know? Yeah, it also kind of has like a dirty dozen in hell kind of thing going for it. The next segment we have is At the Controls with Glenn Rubenstein. I found it so funny that it starts off by saying video games have been around for about 15 years now. What we're playing now is leaps and bounds over what we were playing two years ago. He mentions that uh, the most anticipated game coming out that time or that year, so to speak, was Star Trek The Next Generation. I didn't even know there was a Star Trek Next Generation game, to be honest with you. I had no idea. He also talks about that legendary game that everybody remembers so fondly, Bugsy the Bobcat. Steven, have you ever heard of either of these games? I have not. I had to look up Bugsy the Bobcat because the way they talk about it in this magazine, he's like the next coming of Mario and Sonic. Yeah. And I'm like, who the hell is Bugsy the Bobcat? Yeah. No yeah, clue. And I guess it was like this period in the 90s where they were just trying to replicate the success of Sonic. Like there was yeah. Crash Bandicoot. I remember that one. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I've never heard of Bugsy the Bobcat. There was Bonk's Adventure at one point. Yes. That? Yeah. <laughs> I, what platform would Bugsy the Bobcat even have been on? I don't even know. I think it said Super Nintendo, oh, if man. I'm not mistaken, or a both. It could have been one of those both games. It could have been one of those both games. I don't know. Who knows? Because they were yeah. so excited for it. If, if anybody's a Bugsy the Bobcat fan, please let us know because this is news. This is breaking news to me. You, you know there's one guy sitting at home with like all the Bugsy merchandise. He's got How do you Bugsy not know tattoo. about Bugsy? I got Bugsy tattooed on my butt. <laughs> Oh, God. Send us that tattoo if you have it. Please do. Please do. That'd be fantastic. What else is in this? There's a lot in this article. What do you, you know, is there anything else you think that calls out to you? Sure. So in the next section, which is, you know, part of the video game section, they talk about um, the Super Star Wars game, uh, which was, I remember being a massive deal. To quote the article, created by LucasArts, this game boasts some amazing effects sound and animation after seeing the opening sequences the game looks as if it might even have what it takes to bump street fighter 2 off of the number one pedestal which i mean is there higher praise in this time period seriously than uh bumping off uh street fighter 2 uh and so yeah the review goes on overall quality is way above most games i've played for the snes even though Super Mario Kart offers impressive scrolling and scaling, they pale, no, they die in the wake of Super Star Wars. This is one game that can make the claim of pushing the SNES to its limits and not be full of droid droppings. 
So yeah, and then this was followed up by Super Empire Strikes Back and Super Return of the Jedi. Uh, to me, this I feel like this ushered in the kind of the Star Wars boom of like you know from ninety seven through ninety nine. Uh, yeah, what do you remember this game? No, so, not at all. Wow. Not at all. Not even a bit. Well, not a I bit. Also, I, I was also a, a, a Genesis kid. Like I didn't have a Super Nintendo, so if it wasn't a Mario game that I would have seen somewhere, and GoldenEye, which it didn't even was was that even on SNES? Probably not. I don't it even know. N sixty four. N sixty four. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. Totally, totally lost to me. So Star, I didn't even know there was a Super Star Wars series of games, let alone one game. So this is a all again breaking news to me because, like I said, I was a Genesis kid. I maybe had about five or six games. But yeah, no, when it came to Marvel, like Star Wars stuff, honestly, I didn't really start getting it or getting into it until college, mainly because, and, I, and this sounds funny, like, you know, I'd go see the uh, the Phantom Menace and I was like, this is Star Wars. Like, this is what I'm getting into. And then I started watching the originals. Like, OK, this is much better than Phantom Menace. And then, you know, it was also like at the same time the uh lord of the rings movies were coming out mm-hmm. and um I think my they were so much better than the prequels yeah and and so like lord of the rings was coming out and i was like i didn't like lord of the rings all that much i know i'm gonna get hate on this wow for you're really you're, <laughs> you're really like pissing off a lot of fandoms tonight i really am I, I, the truth is coming out when adam's not here um <laughs> so yeah like I saw the first Lord of the Rings movie. I honestly fell asleep in it twice in the same screening. Oh, boy. Uh, and um, I jokingly say that Lord of the Rings is nine hours and about 40 bucks. I'll never get back for the rest of my life. Oh, um, but, you know, that's why I was like, you know what? Let me let me dive deep into Star Wars. And I did. And I really started enjoying it. I, you know, like most people will say that, you know, Empire Strikes Back is by far the best movie of the entire franchise yes um it's just even you know the the evil guy wins the bad people win but just as a film i think it it has the best flow the best tone the best you know pacing of a movie and it just feels more complete even though a new hope is is a near perfect movie i think empire just is structurally a better film it's a beautiful film. Yeah, I love Empire. And just to tie it back, like this Super Star Wars, I think was the start of Lucasfilm kind of reappreciating the Star Wars brand. Yeah. And it led to like, you know, they they brought back toys into the uh, into the toy stores, the Star Wars Bendoms. Then they released sparked in like the comic books again, like from Dark Wars and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, that started to happen again and then they were re-releasing the videos. So this kind of like led to the Star Wars Renaissance, quote unquote, of the late 90s which culminated in the Phantom Menace. Yes, that's true. And and wasn't there a lot of gripes about the re-release of the of the tapes because they changed stuff in the films and they like yeah. added some visual effects and stuff like that. It was a whole controversy like how do you tamper with this masterpiece? I'm like who cares? You're getting the movie back again. It's great. Who cares? Like, let it go. It's 20, whatever. Boy, you're, again, you're, you're really pissing off a fandom. Here. I am. I'm going all <laughs> in. I'm like, you know, if, if this was the WWE, I'm going to be the heel tonight. <laughs> you are the, the Star Wars heel. Yeah. People hate those special editions. And with good reason. My God. I know. The crappy added to them. 
I know. I they were, know. We liked them. They were fine. Don't change them. <laughs> yes, it, it is true. There was nothing wrong with the originals. I don't know why you need to change them, but whatever. Uh, let's see. <laughs> George Lucas is like, I need a little extra payday. I'm going to add some stuff to it to force people to go take a look at them. I get yeah. it. It's all about money. That's what it is. Let's get yeah. the hell out of this segment before you start getting like Star Wars threats. Oh, oh yeah. It's going to get, <laughs> oh, get real ugly. There's an, also an interesting series of ads for Marvel's relaunch of the Epic Comics line. It's literally 10 ads in a row, each in a different color, with all caps, headers, like adventure, energy, mortality, or morality. Yeah, morality, yeah. Mortality, sure. Sex, murder, survival. The only notable book to come out of this entire line was Tor, by comics legend Joe Kubrick. Uh, Kubert. Ooh, wow. Yeah, don't, kill. yeah. Don't piss off the Kubert people now. Yeah, I know. I, I, I've, I've met his son. So I, oh. I, I met him at a con once. It was pretty cool. Oh, nice. Um, um, returning to the medium and the trouble with girls by Gerard Jones got a lot of critical acclaim. These are strange but kind of effective ads. It, they're, look, they're pretty cool. They're all right. I'll let it go. So, yeah. Anyway, let's move on to The Avengers. And, Stephen, I'm going to let you do some talking because I'm going to shut up because I know I'm going to get some heat, and I'll let you lead this segment. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so the, the article is called Assembling the Avengers West Coast, which features an interview with Roy Thomas. Uh, and, you know, so this Southern California team consisted of U.S. agent, Wonder Man, Spider-Woman, Hawkeye, Mockingbird, and the Mexican-American hero, Living Lightning. According to Thomas on the last character, I really wanted to develop a few native characters. In particular, I thought it was ridiculous that Avengers West Coast had never had a character that helped it to reflect the ethnic diversity of the L.A. area or the whole West Coast. There was not a Mexican-American character, and the group was too white-bred for me. Thomas mentions that at this point in history, the Avengers are no longer the premier Marvel team, and that role has been replaced by the X-Men, who teenagers actually relate to more. My, how times have changed on that one. So uh, what are your memories of the Avengers West Coast? Uh, <laughs> I, I do remember this team. I, I, I do have a couple of issues with U.S. Agent... I, I I love Spider Woman. I also I really like Wonder Man and Mockingbird. Hawkeye back then I didn't like as much as I do now. Like I really started liking Hawk Hawkeye during the post Civil War. Uh, who's going to become Captain America with him and Bucky? That I really liked it. But I also find very interesting about this particular story is it's a little bit ahead of its time in the sense that like, you know, this Roy Thomas here recognized that there needed to be more diversity in the team. And I found, I find that v the most interesting part of this entire article or the, the West coast team that this guy realized, Hey, this doesn't really show a cross section of the West coast of America. And I, I really respect that and appreciate it. Yeah, and like he had done something similar with Giant Size X-Men, obviously, like kind of bringing in an international team. But this was the first, or I mean, I don't know if this was the first, but it's interesting that he wanted to reflect the particular spot that he was writing about. So, yeah, no, it's I agree. Cool. And and um, it's funny that they that they say that the the Avengers are not that popular anymore. 
the Avengers were no longer the premier team. And, you know, it, I guess at that time, they probably weren't, you know? I think X-Men really did reign supreme, but I don't know. I mean, th- the thing is with the X-Men and the Avengers, it's really a case of what do you like better? If you if you love Captain America and the Hulk and Iron Man, you're going to gravitate toward the Avengers. If you like Cyclops and Wolverine and, you know, Storm and Jean Grey, you're going to go to the X-Men. It's really personal preference. I, I could care less. I go either way. There, there are times where I am all in on the Avengers. There's times that I'm all in on the X-Men. Right now, I'm actually on an X-Men kick, personally. But that's just me. Yeah, I mean, the thing about, like, this time period was I feel like you didn't have to tell anybody who the X-Men were. They just, just knew. knew. Yeah. Whereas Avengers, I feel like you needed to explain who they were a little bit. The only thing that always frustrates me about the X-Men is there's so many mutants that all of a sudden random ones will pop up and I'll be like, I know I recognize this character, but I don't know who it is. And they don't say their name in the book for like a while. And I'm like, oh, that's who that is. Oh, great. Whereas like usually with the Avengers is maybe seven or eight characters. You can kind of figure out who they are pretty quickly. But when you have an X-Men story that's got like 30 characters, probably you're like, oh, great. I don't know where I'm at. (laughs) Especially in 93 because they had the X-Men blue and the X-Men gold. Yes, which they did bring back about two years ago. They blew, they had a, a blue, a red, and a and a gold series of X-Men books for about 25 issues each, and then they all tanked, and then they just said, okay, let's bring in Hickman and reboot the whole thing, and they basically, that's what they did right now, which is pretty funny. Oh, that's awesome. I'll have to check yeah. that out. Yeah, the, the Hickman run, they, he did a, it's, it's two six-issue things called Power of X and House of X, or, or yeah, yeah. And they're really, really good, like real strong. And it's a total like rebranding or redesign of the X-Men story arc and everything, which is pretty cool. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So this is then followed up by the 30th anniversary retrospective of the first issue of the Avengers. Interesting. Uh, Taking us through the various members and their histories. Once again, they sort of treat this team like members of a bygone era. Uh, but this article ends on a hopeful note. An old Avengers fan can only wonder, is this the beginning of a new Avengers? The uh, the fourth decade, at last the year in which they will regain their past glories and become, after a long time, the Earth's mightiest heroes once again. I get it. Okay, yeah. I mean, th- this is also... A funny thing about this, now that I'm thinking about this, this is also probably around the time where Marvel is starting to sell off a lot of their properties. That's you know? true. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's I'm wondering, because like they were really selling off like the X-Men and, and so on and so forth because they were in financial trouble around this time and, and leading up to the years following, which is interesting. Um, yeah. And, and like the Iron Man cartoon would come out, I think, the September of this year. Yeah. Or maybe the next, or no, it was 94. I think but... it was 94, right? Yeah, 94, yeah. Um, so uh, Patrick Daniel O'Neill was a couple decades off, but man, did he get that one right? Like that they do eventually become what we considered Earth Mightiest Heroes, mostly because of the MCU and so on. So now we've talked a lot already, but let's dive into <laughs> our cover story. 
of Wolverine, Claws and Effect. Uh, there's an interview with Larry Hama. Is that what it says? Hama? Yes. Uh, he takes us through the history of Wolverine and tells us this juicy bit that Logan has been given a long, convoluted, mysterious, and maybe even false history. And now the task has fallen on Larry Hama to clear up some of the red herrings of Wolverine's past. And the red herrings were planted not only by Chris Claremont, but by uh, by Byrne and by Barry Windsor Smith. Pretty interesting. That's interesting. I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. Um, and by m- more recent revelations, by mutant scribes and plotters such as Jim Lee, uh, Wills Portacio, uh, Fabian, how do you pronounce the prince's last name? <laughs> I was, that's why I gave it to you. <laughs> I had no idea. I'm going to just say Fabian uh, Nachiches. You could just skip. You could just, yeah. Scott, Scott Lobdell. Yeah. Yeah. Scott Lobdell. Sure. Great. And not to mention X-Men editor, Bob Harris, uh, who, whose editing philosophy seems to be keep the fans guessing. And no one plays into Wolverine's convoluted history more than one specific character we've been talking about, of course, is Sabretooth. And because I just totally butchered Fabian's name, I'm going to let Steven talk about Sabretooth for a minute. (laughs) Okay. So it says, there are many great rivalries in superhero comics. Some struggles have spanned decades, like Superman and Lex Luthor, for example, or the Fantastic Four and Doctor Doom. Others have also been extremely personal in nature, such as the case between Spider-Man and the Green Goblin. But none of these match the conflict between Wolverine and Sabretooth for sheer viciousness. Beyond that, the relationship between these two, and what their origins really are, is one of the greatest mysteries in comics. Even they themselves don't know the full story, and what they think they do know might not be true. We've seen many bits and pieces of this story over the last several years, but the full tale is as yet unrevealed. The question remains, who are these guys, what's their relationship, and why do they hate each other? So, is this when they really started the X-Men, the Wolverine origin book around this time, or was it much uh, yeah. later? I, <clears throat> so, yeah, I think it was around this time. Um, so, do you want to just, like, should I just give some fast facts about Sabretooth? As yeah, sure, go for it, yeah. So yeah, some fast facts about Sabretooth as we dive into this character discussion. He was created by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. His alter ego is Victor, his alter ego is Victor Creed. And then there's a note from probably Adam from the future that says, "Michael, did you know this?" I know it now. <laughs> okay, that's all that matters. Uh, he he made his first appearance in Iron Fist number fourteen, where on the cover he's yelling uh, at Iron Fist, "You're snowblind, hero. Your flaming fist means nothing now." which is a great intro to anybody. That is pretty uh, good. I like that. According to Wizard, he is first portrayed as a freebooter, a modern-day pirate, and fast with claws that are razor sharp. He's like a human saber tooth, the ultimate killing machine. But uh, as much as they called him that, uh, he was easily defeated by Iron Fist. He was easily defeated later by Power Man and Iron Fist. Uh, and then he was easily defeated by Spider-Man. So I don't know if you see a, a pattern here, but... Sabretooth got his butt kicked a lot in the beginning. Apparently, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, he came to prominence as an X-Men villain in 1986 
when Claremont introduced Sabretooth as a minor member of the Marauders, uh, he eventually grew into Wolverine's main antagonist. Uh, his main mutant power is Healing Factor, which was a retcon to make him closer to Wolverine. It's actually revealed later in the comic books that they were both a member of the Wep- or they were both members of the Weapon X program. Like Wolverine, Sabretooth's memories have been tampered with, so he doesn't know what's fact and what's fiction. So, uh, when did you first become aware of Sabretooth? So, to be honest with you, it was the X Men animated series, and I, I just remember the design of that character on the animated series was just so like different and and a little bit terrifying as a kid. Like he was a scary character, though. You know, I didn't think he was always as big of a threat as you know he could have been, but he was a pretty scary character. Then they, you know, sort of reintroduced him in the first X Men film, where I, I just, though I like some of the the characterization of that thing, I feel like they missed the mark on how to make Sabretooth as scary as he could have been in that movie. Yeah, he was very generic. Like, you know, third string bad guy in that movie. Definitely. Uh, For me, like, um, I remember in sixth grade, you know, there was, you know, the the scholastic reader that you get where you would order books. Oh, yeah, for sure. And we ordered, they had uh, an X-Men guidebook, which was kind of like the encyclopedia for the X-Men. And like, you know, when it arrived, I looked around the class to kind of see who else had ordered it. (laughs) <laughs> and that's how I found all my friends in sixth grade. But in hey, that, yeah, I was like, it's like, okay, Chris likes it. Dave likes it. Great. This, <laughs> this is who I've got. But in that book, they described, uh, which I have here, they described Sabretooth as uh, Wolverine's greatest enemy. In fact, he's the only enemy who's ever beaten Wolverine, not once, but every time they've met. Uh, Wolverine hunts and kills only when necessary. Sabretooth kills everything he hunts, from the smallest animal to any human unfortunate enough to cross his path. So, like, reading that as a sixth grader, I'm just thinking, this is the greatest villain ever written. Yeah. (laughs) And just the fact that he, you know, we all knew who Wolverine was, and we all loved Wolverine, and the fact that he beat Wolverine every single time, you know, this guy was a powerhouse to us. Yeah. So, yeah. Were you disappointed when you actually started reading stuff about about Sabretooth? <laughs> uh, no, no. I think I think at that point he was, you know, he was a, a badass. Like the way the way he was drawn in those comics, uh, the way he always did battle with Wolverine. I, I never got the sense that he was losing. Yeah, I, at the, the back then. Yeah, I guess so. Good point. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so another question I had was, you know, what was your understanding of who Sabretooth was in relation to Wolverine? So are you asking if I knew back then or now? Yeah, back then, like when you were, when you were a kid and you read about Sabretooth, who did you think he was? I always kind of thought they had some sort of relationship in the sense that they were related somehow. Because their their powers were, especially in the animated series, were so similar, and they 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 did cross over a lot of like, you know, their their like heightened sense of smell, their hearing, their ferociousness, their violence. Like, I always thought they were somehow connected. Like, they had to be related in some sense. But I didn't know until, obviously, a few years later when they reveal it that they're actually 
brothers, which I thought was always interesting. So, so here's the interesting thing, because when I was a kid, we were under the impression that they were father and son, and like that's what we always talked about. But it turns out that they're not related at all in the comics. Really? Yeah. And I had oh, to like. Great. I'm, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get beat for this now. <laughs> I thought they were. I thought they were still related. My bad. Oh boy. No, like right before we recorded, I, I looked it up again because I also thought they were brothers. So you know, I, I looked it up and it said, you know, that while their relationship has taken many different paths and different mediums, like in the movie X Men Origins Wolverine, they are brothers. Right. Yeah. Uh, and you know, he's played by you know Lee Schreiber, and that movie's you know god awful. Mm-hmm. But, yes, it is. But you know, while like in the comic book continuity, they grew up close to each other. They have similar powers. They have similar origins, but they're not related at all. But then in the book X Men Forever, which was written by Chris Claremont, they retcon that he he brought back the idea that Wolverine is or that Sabretooth is Wolverine's father, and apparently that was always his initial intention. Hmm. But, but it's not considered canon weird so it's why. as complicated as as can be who they are. For you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah in relation to each other uh so yeah so then Sabretooth would prove to be so popular that in august of 1993 he was given his own limited series which i believe i had uh and then finally in 2018 wolverine bested Sabretooth by killing and beheading him in the weapon x series uh marvel swore it was for good and that Sabretooth was finally dead but they brought him back eventually <laughs> Of course they did. That's comics, baby. There you go. That's comics. Any further thoughts on Sabretooth? I'm bummed that they're not related. I I would have... I I liked that, you know, that's like a dream killer right there for me. I I love the idea that they were were related or they're, you know, somehow connected. Father and son, brothers or whatever. I, I feel like that is a more interesting dynamic than they're just, you know, rivals. Because, you know... Joker is Batman's rival. Lex Luthor is Superman's rival. But neither one of them have a brother who's their enemy, so to speak. You know, like it would have been, I, I would have liked that. I don't know. That's just a bummer to me. But hey, that's, it is. Yeah. A nice. I mean, so. unless I'm completely wrong and I, and because I, this is like the most complicated character history. It is pretty complicated. That's, pretty, that's pretty convoluted right there. I'll tell it's you. It's so convoluted and like, you know, their memories are implanted or they're lost or whatever. So who knows? Maybe they really are. They just don't remember. They may, and knowing comics, they'll retcon it at some point and and make it something else. I'm sure, <laughs> without a doubt. So, let's dive into now heroes in motion. And the big news here is that for the first full report of what could be a major, major part of Steven's life, and I want you to kind of like tell us about this a little bit. What's going on here? This is something we've kind of teased a little bit, and I want you to you know share what your thoughts are. So this is the first full report on the Fantastic Four movie going into production the legendary Roger Corman production that never officially saw release. This to me was, you know, the way my parents described seeing the moon landing. Uh, That's (laughs) how I feel about the unreleased Fantastic Four. 
It was like the most major event in my life up to that point. That's pretty fun. Really? I, so I will admit, I recently found this online and I watched about the first half hour of it. I haven't finished it yet. I'll tell you right now, I don't hate it. Okay. Okay. This is good news. I so don't hate it. Did you know about it at the time? No, I did not. Interesting. Okay. Because I like, here's my memory. It's seventh grade. I'm waiting for school to start. And so, one of my friends, I hear him talking and he's like, oh yeah, my brother rented a movie and there was a, a trailer for the, for the new Fantastic Four movie before it. And I'm like, what? I'm like, <laughs> I'm like what movie? How do I rent this? How do I see this? And, he's, and he, he didn't remember what movie it was. So I kept asking him and asking him and asking him and pestering him. And finally he goes to me, I think it was uh, Sliver, which was the Sharon Stone erotic thriller. I know it well. <laughs> so I had to, I'm 12 and I had to go to my hometown video store and ask the female clerk behind the counter, hey, uh, can I rent Sliver? Can I get that R-rated Sharon Stone movie? You know. Yeah. And with it, Billy Baldwin in it? Yeah, that one. And it wasn't on there. He was just messing with me because he was so sick of me asking him. Oh, what a, yeah. what a jerk. I know. I was really, I was, yeah. I was like, dude, come on. Um, so finally, again, I cornered him again. I'm like, it wasn't on Sliver. Just tell me any detail you remember. And he goes, there's a dinosaur in it. And so I know it's not Jurassic Park. And so I'm thinking, is it Carnosaur? Could it be Carnosaur? And, and he goes, yeah, I think that's it. So sure enough, I rent Carnosaur from my video store, and there's the trailer for the Fantastic Four movie. And no it, way. Carnosaur really had the trailer for this movie? Carnosaur was a Roger Corman production, and it also had the trailer. Oh, uh, well, that makes sense then. Okay, that, that, that tracks. All right. And they also used some of the same sets in Carnosaur for Doctor Doom's lair in, this, in the Fantastic Four movie. <laughs> That's pretty but funny. yeah, and so I rent it, and I must have watched that trailer a hundred times in a row the point where i the the tape wore out from me watching it on a rental copy on a rental on a rental i i've since bought the tape like and have it in my personal collection and then you know a couple months later in wizard i read this movie's not coming out ever and it just wow. like it crushed me crush your dreams me. yeah and i became like in seventh grade this fantastic four the movie nut where i was going to photocopy machines and enlarging the small photos and making my own eight by tens and hanging those on my wall. Were you really? I was doing every like, and I, you know, and I really wanted to see it. And then I think it was hero magazine, which had a review of it and said it's available in bootleg form. So I was going to every comic book store I could find and saying, Hey, do you have fantastic for the movie? Hey, do you have fantastic for the movie nonstop for months? And finally, I went to one, and it was in Queens, and the guy goes, I don't have it, but I've seen it. <laughs> and it was the first person I talked to who had seen it. It's like an enigma. It's a, yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm dying to see it. And he goes, no, you're not. <laughs> I'm like, no, sir, I really want to see it. He goes, no, you don't. He's like, it's terrible. <laughs> and, I'm, and he goes to me, there's a scene where Johnny Storm sneezes, and that's how he finds out he's the human torch. And I'm like, okay, that doesn't sound great, but I still want to see the movie. <laughs> that doesn't sound great. And so he goes, there's a convention in New York. They'll have it there. And so I'm like, I go home, I'm begging my dad, please let me go to this convention in the city. And he, he wouldn't take me. And it took years for me to finally see the movie. Wow. Years. Yeah. I, that's fascinating. So granted, I haven't seen the whole thing yet. I know that Adam wants to do an entire episode about it. 
But I have one very important question that I need answered before I go any further. I don't care about spoilers. The movie's almost 30 years old. In the beginning of the movie, you have Reed Richards and you have uh, Victor Von Doom uh, doing their experiment when this like solar or whatever thing is happening. They're inside the facility. The part that I've gotten to so far is we see Sue Storm and Johnny Storm like on a hill watching whatever's happening in the sky. So my two questions are, one, why are they children? <laughs> and two, do they end up going to this facility to find Reed? And that's how they got affected as well? Or does everybody in this mountain that watching this thing get infected too? No. So in the movie, uh, Ben and Reed live in the Storm boarding house. Like they're college students. Right. Yeah. And so she has a crush on him. She's and then, like, like 12 years old and he's like 25. <laughs> it's a little weird. It's a little weird. And so they flash forward after that. And Reed is still trying to get to Colossus, which is the name of like the, you know, the asteroid belt or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. And so by this point, Sue and Johnny have grown up. And so they bring them aboard on the spaceship, which is what you do. You bring you bring your friends on board the spaceship. But yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's completely like, you know, the next scene is like 10 years later or whatever it is. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I thought they got their powers in that like lightning storm thing. Interesting. I didn't know that. OK, no, they, I... they go in, they go into space and, they, and, you know, they wear these big, silly, silver spaceship outfits. And now uh, I got yeah. I got to finish this movie now. Now I got to see it. Now I'm invested. OK. Fantastic. Well, yeah, and we can go. With, I I hope we go into detail in it under, in a further episode. But I just want you to know, like you know, reading this, this is this is a monumental event in my life. Okay, now now I'm fully invested. So all right, I'm I'm in with that. All right, awesome, cool. awesome. And and watch that trailer. It's on YouTube. Oh, I I will watch the trailer. I'll watch it over and over again to analyze <laughs> it. There's some Batman the Animated Series news. February sweeps will contain many new episodes of Batman the Animated Series after an all rerun December and January. Who cares? It's whatever. Great. Fine. Uh, with only 18 episodes left to air, Warner Brothers is currently planning to withhold whichever remaining episodes haven't been aired in February for May sweeps, though execs admit that the season may wrap up in February. Upcoming show guests would star Batgirl, Rachel Ghoul, Talia Al Ghoul, uh, Maxi Zeus, the Crime Doctor, and there's a Robin two-part origin, uh, which will be also told in Robin's Reckoning. Is that the one where they go after Tony Zuko? Yes, it is. Okay, that's a great episode. That's, that's great... my favorite episode of Batman. Yeah, those, those, mine too. I think that's one of the, that one, and the one where he first meets Talia with the with Vertigo, mm -hmm. and like I love that episode. That's one of my favorites. Also, um, those are both up there. Um, Fox hasn't signed for a second season, which I find that hard to believe, um, and the decision will probably wait until after. February ratings come in, especially after the disastrous primetime debut. Really? I guess, I mean, it's, it's really a Saturday morning show. I don't know why they ever did it and tried it in primetime, but I, whatever. I get it. It's Batman. You know, Batman always brings in money. Mm -hmm. um, 
they work on a potential Catwoman and Robin series has stalled. I didn't know that there was a cat. That's interesting. That's again, breaking news for me 27 years later. What do you know? Um, However, work is continuing on the 70 to 90 minute Batman, the animated series film, which would be released in Christmas of 93. And is that mask of the phantasm? It is, yes. Yes, it was It was initially intended to be a direct-to-video release. Yeah. I mean, if you haven't seen Mask of the Phantasm, it is not just one of the best animated superhero movies, it's one of the best superhero movies I've ever seen, bar none. I love that movie. It's pretty spectacular. It's it's really well done. It's one of those movies that I'm, I'm bummed that they don't really use the Phantasm character ever again after that. Like, ever. No, she, no. She, she uh, the character appears in I think Batman Beyond maybe once, but other than that, you never see it again or hear from it again. And it was such a bummer because it was a very interesting story. But yeah, they, they, they brought in a lot of cool characters in that TV show who they haven't capitalized on enough. Yeah, in my for opinion. sure. Uh, they also discussed the upcoming Jason Goes to Hell and plug the Topps comic tie-in. There's the also the upcoming Dennis the Menace comic strip adaptation, which will be written by John Hughes, and it even says that he's in development on a live-action Peanuts, which of course never happened. Uh, and speaking of films that never happened, there's even a blurb that says, rumor has it that Superman the new movie is going into production this month to film in Florida. Then there's Howard Stern's The Adventures of Fartman, which they're saying has an $11 million budget from New Line Cinema. And the quote is, the flatulent superhero film will shoot in New York in May. It's expected to smell up the theaters this fall. I, I, I'm just really glad that never happened. Yeah, me too. I, I actually like uh, Howard Stern's private parts. I thought that movie is a very good movie. Like, it's a well-done movie. Yeah, but, oh, yeah. oh, definitely. But Fart Man would not have worked. Fart Man would have been a disaster waiting to happen. <laughs> Uh, there's an early reference in this article to the Wayans brothers uh, working on a new film called Blank Man, which would obviously come out a year later. Uh, and then there's mention of Jim O'Barr's comic book, The Crow, which is beginning production next month, ending with the note, Brandon Lee top lines the film. Wow, that's weird. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know if you know this, but I have a secret obsession with Blank Man. <laughs> I love that movie. It is... I, I love Damon Wayans. I really do. Like he's one of my favorite, you know, comedians uh, all the way back to in living color. And I was so pumped for blank man. And even though it's, it's not a good movie. I understand that as a filmmaker and a storyteller, I understand it is not a good movie, but I just love the idea that it's, you know, it's truly an every man. If there was a, poor Batman that was pretty smart and could figure things out. You got blank man and he has the blank station. You know, I, I'm okay with it. I like it. You know, he's got J five, J five. Come on. It's a great movie. It's brilliant. Uh, it's, it's a movie. It's, it's a movie. movie that, that came out in theaters. It's uh, a movie. <laughs> I've heard you talk about it before. I feel like we've even talked about it before. Um, it's, it's, it's a movie. It's a movie. It does correct me if I'm wrong. Does it open with him watching the '60s Batman? Yes. On yes TV? He does. Okay, so that does happen. Yeah. So he is very inspired by Batman, and he has a 
plunger on his belt? Yes, he does. And okay. he, wear, he wears like uh, kitchen cleaning dishwasher gloves. Yes, like, yes. Uh, look, it's it's kind of meta. It's kind of goofy. I mean, it's very goofy. It's silly. But I don't know. It's There's like a, a, a charm to it. I don't know. It's one of those things that like, it's kind of charming. And I, I also follow his son, Damon Wayans Jr., on social media because I used to love the show Happy Endings, and he's on that show. Mm-hmm. And he's been promoting possibly doing a Blank Man 2, Son of Blank Man, and him playing it. Okay. Well, I know okay. one guy who will see it. Oh, I'll be all in. I'll, 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 if you do a Kickstarter, I'll throw you a hundred bucks for that. <laughs> I swear. Uh, so. any, any word if uh, Jason Alexander will reprise the villain role? or I, If he does, I'm on board. I'm on board. Throw Throw me in the net. I'll I'll be the DP on the film. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, I'm good. I'll well, do it. you know it, this this is very exciting. Then that this is the first mention of Blank Man. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm pumped. So if we're gonna be watching the Roger Corman Fantastic Four, we're gonna be watching Blank Man at some point. I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of heroes, let's dive into. Azrael's action figure fury. The toying around section uh, has a, a question of no more female figures according to a report it is now a hundred percent fact that toy biz is going to stop selling female figures and that invisible woman will be the last one and fun fact out there all you wizard listeners here jason from the retro network gave me a figure of fan of the invisible woman of that run i have it in my house in the packaging. I am so pumped. He sent it to me as like a, hey, I know you like Invisible Woman. I have this figure that's 30 years old almost. And he just mailed it to me in a box that was like unmarked. I'm like, what is this? <laughs> but I opened it. It's pretty awesome. So um, a letter from Dave Cockrum. Okay. Dave <laughs> Cockrum. All right. Great. Uh, the co-creator of Storm. Uh who is complaining about the Toy Biz Storm action figure, he has some pretty harsh words for Toy Biz about why that exact figure just didn't work. So Dave Cockrum says, Speaking as a longtime comics pro and creator of The Lady in Question, and also as a former figure kit designer for Aurora Models, it's my opinion that the Storm figure didn't sell because, well, let's just say it stinks. This is not only my opinion. I ask around at every comic book convention I go to. Hey, what's wrong with the Toy Biz Storm? Here's a bit of the response I get. One, it's ugly. Two, it has no shape, no hips, no thighs, no breasts. Three, it has pencils for arms and legs. Four, the most scathing remarks were aimed at the stupid light-up lightning bolt on her chest. The fans hate it. Uh, And then lastly, probably the most common complaint... She's wearing a costume that nobody likes. 
Most fans want her in the Jim Lee costume, including the cape. A sizable minority would like to see her in her original costume, the one I designed. So it's obvious. Toy Biz screwed up on Storm. I suggest they try again. Do Rogue or Psylocke. And if that figure does better, perhaps they they can consider redoing Storm sometime down the line. Best, Dave Cockrum. Pulls no punches. Yeah, I don't know. The verbiage he uses, again, doesn't doesn't translate well. And if we have any female listeners, we apologize for Dave Cockrum's uh, remarks about the figure itself and how it's uh, portrayed. But, yeah, uh, I don't know. It, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's weird. You know, it's weird. It was it's weird to read it aloud. And it is, a little, it you know, <laughs> so apologies all around. So, you know, the funny thing is like this, like, you know, at the time when they were creating these action figures, they did not know how to market them to a broader market. And, you know, most little kids, most little kids that were buying these action figures were boys our age or younger. And what did they want? Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, Captain America, and so on. You know, it's it, it's the same kind of story as Marvel Comics releases 55 titles a month, but maybe 30 of them sell. And again, with action figures, like, like I said, there's not a market for everybody, especially this time when you didn't have social media or other things that could promote action figures. Like nowadays, most of my statues, like I have a, a, a collection of, of like Bowen design statues. I have Captain Marvel. They ha- I have the Wasp. I have Spider-Woman. I have uh, Scarlet Witch. And I, the only, only male Marvel Bowen statues I have are Cable and Miracle Man. <laughs> like I don't know I just think that the artwork and the way that they're done is just much better and I appreciate them more but as a 10 11 year old kid I wanted a Batman figure it's just that's the way it was it wasn't a matter of how they were modeled or designed it's just that's what kids wanted in my opinion how about you yeah I mean I think I always felt um whenever I was a kid and I'd play with toys you never felt like your storyline was complete because you didn't have some key figures from the movies or from the comic books that you were reading. Like, you know, they came out with, like, the Toy Biz Batman figures for the movie. They released Bob the Goon. Great. But there's no Vicky Vale. No. You know? Like, that kind of bummed me. I wish they did a Vicky Vale. I wish they had done even the, you know, what's his name? Uh, the, report, the reporter. Uh, Jimmy Olsen? No. In, oh, in oh, Batman. Sorry, uh, Alexander Knox. Yes, Alexander Knox, you know, like that would have been kind of cool. You know, there's, you know, there's never really been a lot of Jim Gordon figures. No, no, there. Yeah, there are always like these secondary characters that they kind of ignored. Yeah, which was a bummer. But yeah, like, you know, I had the Storm figure. I thought the Storm figure was okay. Um, And then later they released that rogue figure, uh, which is not great. And that Invisible Woman figure that you that you just mentioned, I have that. Uh, and again, not great. It's not, not a great, great figure. And not like great. it's, I you know it's it's on my shelf because I love the Fantastic Four, but that head is really weird and small. They just didn't know how to sculpt they the did, female they, figures. They, they, they also 
you know, you didn't have a 3D printer that you could manufacture. You couldn't design it in a computer. It's not that easy back then. Period. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it was a bummer. Like, and I think eventually they did figure it out because, like, you know, looking into this, they did re-release that Storm figure and they did take some of those suggestions. Uh, I think That's it's kind of cool. Yeah, like, it, it's, you know, it's a bit of a repaint, but they do give her that modern costume that he was talking about. So, you know, they eventually, the, you know, Invisible Woman was not the last Toy Biz yeah. female figure. They did start releasing other ones. Uh, so, yeah, it's... It was a weird point in history. It was. I agree. That's an excellent way to transition to my next question. Okay. We have, you know, we both collect action figures. I actually recently, there's a um, a toy store. Have you ever heard of um, Fantastic Toyage in Massapequa? No. Okay. So in Massapequa, there's a place called Fantastic Toyage. It's a really 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 popular old school action figure and toy store if you are looking for something this guy has it so if you're looking for old star wars figures old batman figures old you name it he's got it if you want a statue of uh, you know don corleone that's you know quarter scale from 20 years ago done by sideshow he's got it he's got lightsabers and you name it so i went there recently and he had a lot not all but a lot of the batman uh, 89 and batman returns action figures on his shelf still in the packaging so i grabbed a bunch off the shelf i handed it to him and i said please hold these for me. I may be buying more. Then I found that he has the Batmobile from Batman Returns, that oh, the God. one that breaks apart into the missile. Yeah. He's he's got the Joker from Batman. It's $100. I didn't buy that one, but all in, I think I spent maybe like 100 bucks and I bought these figures and right now I'm in this point where like they're still sealed in their original packaging. Now, my question for you is, are you an in-the-package kind of guy or out-of-the-package kind of a guy? This is a great question. <laughs> uh, I am out-of-the-package. and But here's the thing. I If it's an old figure that I buy, uh, like what you're describing, I won't take it out of the package. I'll leave it in there. It's been in there for 25 or 30 years. I respect that, and I'll leave it in there. If it's an, But when I... When I do go back and try to buy retro toys, I will look for things that are specifically out of the package so that I can display them that way. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I just, I don't know. There's just something about it. I like to take them out, put them on the shelf. Uh, like, I like the tactile feeling of, like, when I was a kid. Yeah. Remembering what that felt like. The smell, the, the, the articulation in the arms, a little rubber, or just the feel, the fabric of the cape. Yes. Yes. You know? And, like... You know, you know, I've gone back and bought certain toy lines from when I was a kid. I went back and bought the Superpowers toy line about 10 years ago. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And, and you know, there's something about squeezing those legs and watching Batman's arms move mm -hmm. that you he, wouldn't get if you kept it in the box. He actually, and I was really compelled to buy this. He had the Superpowers Mr. Freeze. You know, the two little, like, rubber rods that were, like, sticking out of his hips for, like, the freeze guns. I know it very well. 
yeah, he had that, and I was real compelled to buy that. I was like, oh, I kind of want that, and I still might get it because I'm like looking at that. He had the 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 penguin, not the black and red one from the Batman line, but the blue one from the Superpowers line. And I was yep, like, oh. I've got that on my shelf. I'm looking yeah. at it right now. I <laughs> love that one. That's a good one. So this is in Massapequa. It's in Massapequa on uh, Merrick Road or or Montauk Highway, right past John Burns Park. Okay, I, I haven't been back to Long Island since uh, you know the world changed, mm-hmm. but uh, but I, but you know I, I should go back and I should go there because that sounds amazing. It's a cool store. Like he's got a lot. I mean, it's it's your real cliche like hoarder mentality kind of a store. But if you're looking for some vintage stuff that you couldn't find anywhere else, he's got it. Like he's got it, and he's like old school, like. He doesn't even have like a computer. He does everything through a cash register. Like it's old school, That's but it's cool. Awesome. Like he's got like old, you know, GI Joe, like the original GI Joes from like the sixties and the seventies, like the the actual like Barbie doll style ones. And like, remember those paper airplanes you used to assemble with the with the fake propeller that you would throw it and it like. Yep. He has those too. Oh my like, gosh! Yeah. So. <laughs> this that's awesome. So, like, let me ask you this because I'm going to deep dive in on Long Island now. And <laughs> if you can, if sure. you use this, that's fine. Adam's not here. I don't care. We can do whatever we want. This is my show tonight. Did you? I, ever, mean, did I might you... go uncut. Just let it all go. <laughs> did you used to go to a? Okay, there's two stores I want to ask you about. First is I used to go to a store called the Muck Time. Oh yes, lot. I know. I know a Muck Time very well. Yeah. Because okay. originally that was like on Hempstead Turnpike. And then they moved to another crummy location, and it's like it, it's not good anymore. That crummy location is my hometown. <laughs> is it really? That's yeah, your that's, hometown. That's Bethpage. That's where I grew up. Yeah, I, I I knew it was in Bethpage. I just I don't like their new store a lot. It's yeah, not, it's not, it doesn't have the same feel as the original store. Yeah, well, the old store was like like the way you described this one, where it was kind of packed to the gills with stuff and overflowing, and they had all these displays. And now it's more. I think a lot of it's mail order business. Yeah, most of it is. Yeah. Which is a shame. And the other one is, it was a store in Farmingdale called The Land of Oohs and Oz. I know of The Land of Oohs and Oz. I did not go there. I used to go to, um, uh, what's it called? It was in Huntington. It was a uh, uh, Collector's Kingdom hmm. up, up on 25A. There was a place kind of like um, Fantastic Toyage where it was a, but he also, this guy also sold comic books. And he had everything. Like, if you wanted the entire He-Man line from the 80s, he had all of them still in the packaging. He had stuff that I wanted to buy so badly. Like, I really wanted to buy, like, real, real vintage statues and really cool stuff. And um, a couple of years ago, about five years ago, the he had like a air conditioner unit that was one of those like standalone ones mm-hmm. and it caught fire and set the entire building on fire oh. and and burned the whole place down with all the collectibles inside of it and he had no insurance on the place oh man yeah what a it, bummer that's awful yeah it was tragic and it was about five six years ago that happened and then um but he was a really nice he was like an old guy like a real old guy and real sweet dude and i remember you know i didn't talk to him afterwards but i have a friend who knew him from childhood and he was like uh you know he just moved to florida and kind of was like he 
withered away, unfortunately. And, and oh, man. But, but like, this was like his life was this, this store. And I, I appreciate those kind of stores. These like small toy stores that really have some cool stuff. and some cool history and, you know, interesting stuff. But I never went to the, I, I knew of the one farmer, but I never went there. That was like, oh, that was a really, I think it's still there actually. But it, it was one of those really weird stores where... Is it on floor, Main Street? Or is it... Where is it? It was like right next to a train station, next to a bar called Croxley's, like a kind of... Oh, I know Croxley's. I, I, was, I was literally there tonight because there's a, a, <laughs> a, a restaurant there called The Meatball Place, and we picked up to go from there, and I was literally right there tonight. I have to look to see if that place is still there. I didn't notice if it was there, and I'll look. Oh, I know that's, that train awesome. station is. that's fun. That's so strange. You said that because I was literally there tonight, <laughs> tonight, like crazy. four hours ago. When, so when my wife was pregnant with our daughter, like, you know, eight years ago now, uh, she had a real craving for chicken wings. So we used mm-hmm. to go there all the time. And I was just like in heaven and she was, <laughs> she was pregnant. So I had a designated driver <laughs> and I, it was I, a great beer menu there. So I saw Dave Attell there live. Really? One time. Yeah. He did stand up there one night. Um, and he just did like a, it was like a standing room only kind of a thing. I was maybe about three feet away from him. This is probably about 15 years ago now. This goes way back. And uh, it was amazing. It was a really good show. Huh. It's, a fun, it's a fun little place. You know, this is for those of you guys who don't live on Long Island or live in the in the Northeast. This is not the episode for you because we're going <laughs> on deep cuts. But but it's kind of fun to talk about. But yeah. So anyway. Yeah, so yeah, this is the kind of place where like the floorboards are kind of creaking in, and like mm-hmm. you gotta watch it, and like you know they'll block off certain parts of the store because like they're not safe for human beings to walk in. Yeah, uh, you can't go over there. Don't do that. Don't don't yeah. Step, don't step there. <laughs> don't step on that part because you might fall right through. Uh, but yeah, and it was they had so much stuff, and they had you know just years, decades worth of stuff, and you'd be walking through and. You'd find toys that you never knew even existed. existed. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was like one of those places. And then they had all the Migos and then they had custom Migos. Mm-hmm. And like one of my favorite things I found there was some kid, I guess, had brought in his or some now adult uh, had brought in a box of old toys and they were toys that he repainted as a kid. And it was like I found a superpowers plastic man repainted as a Mr. Fantastic toy. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and it's one of those unique toys that I have that I can't get rid of because like yeah. I'd never be able to find it again. No, never. And and that's the cool thing about those kind of stores. And they and they're just they're not just in Long Island. They're all over the place. But like if you had something unique and the owner thought, "Hey, you know what? I could probably resell this." They would buy that stuff off of you all the time. Yeah. Which is really interesting. Like I I've, I've sold, you know, you know, Funko Pops to a store that he resold it for double the price. And I was like, I don't care. You you know, he gave me 20 bucks. He sold it for 40. Great. Keeps him in business. I don't care. Yeah. Uh, also, do you ever trade like, you know, barter with them? Yes. Like bring in a box of stuff. And you'd be like, give me these and I'll give you this. Yes. So I had mentioned about that uh, Don Corleone. So my buddy had this quarter scale Don Corleone. He traded that in to get a Bowen Designs uh buck rogers wow 
and it was like this really cool like smoke thing coming out of it. It was interesting. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> it was like a train. I'm like, what? You trade you trade the statue for a statue? Okay, cool, whatever. <laughs> pretty funny. I traded all my Phantom Menace toys for a few McDonald's glasses from the seventies. <laughs> this guy has that. I saw the other day. He had like I used to have the Batman, uh, Batman Forever mugs. Remember those mugs that came out from McDonald's? Yep, yep. I still have my Riddler one. I had the Two-Face one and a Batman one. I don't have them anymore. This guy had the whole line, and I was like, oh, God, I may have to buy these. I wouldn't want to drink out of them, but I might want to buy them. <laughs> the, the Batman Forever, like, that was one of the, you know, merchandising bonanza summers, oh, and I a... loved everything that came out, all those toys, all the McDonald's yeah. tie-ins. That was a great summer. It was a great summer. I, you know, I think because they they were hurt so badly by the Batman Returns that they went all in and above for the Batman Forever action figures and toys yeah. and merchandising and everything. I had this great Riddler ceramic mug from the WB store, and then my friends broke it on a film shoot by accident, and I was so upset. Oh and, no! And then Quint, so I at the time I was interning at Tribeca, uh, which is where you you worked at the. The film festival. I okay. actually worked. Okay, cool. I, I interned for like the Tribeca main office, mm-hmm. like their, and then also like their development department. But I was in the elevator and Joel Schumacher was there. No way. And so I had just lost my Riddler mug. So I'm like, I'm like, all right, I'm going to talk to Joel Schumacher. <laughs> I'm like, uh, excuse me, uh, you're Joel Schumacher. He goes, yes, who are you? And he's like the friendliest, <laughs> nicest person. And I go, oh, I'm a huge fan of Batman Forever. He's like, thank you. That's so nice. And I go, yeah, actually, I have a Riddler mug and it just broke. And he goes, oh, that's too bad. I just got rid of a bunch of Batman Forever stuff. I would have, I would have given it to you. Wow. Like, oh, man. If only Joel Schumacher had come into my life a month earlier. Oh, a month earlier. Maybe Mr. I would Schumacher. have got his, his collection of Batman Forever stuff. But yeah, he was like the nicest person to this geeky wow. intern. That's pretty cool. That's interesting. I didn't. That's a, that's a really cool story. Yeah, I I worked for the Tripeca Film Festival a couple of years, and I also worked for the Weinstein Company, which I'd rather not mention, but I did. Uh, yeah, they they were in that building. Yeah, it was a weird place to work for. Um, and yeah, I worked for MSNBC, and I did a lot of freelance uh, commercials for a production company that did all the, the three musketeers commercials oh nice back in the day remember when they did that like movie theater one where like the musketeers like dangling in the sky and yep. the girl so i was on that set you know i was one of the guys dangling the three musketeers <laughs> it's a glamorous business isn't it it is oh yeah it's a you know 18 hours a day i was driving a pickup truck in the morning and then a van to pick up people then i'm just holding a fishing line with a with a three musketeers for about four hours and i couldn't drop my arm like oh this is wonderful this is going well but let me ask you this before and you know again this is i know we're veering off topic i don't care i don't care sorry adam we're going we're going rogue (laughs) what was the tribeca film festival the worst place to work oh it was you it was not the worst place to work but it was a rough job yes um it was a real rough job um so basically the the year that i was kind of one of the event managers so to speak so like they had like the the tour guides that kind of leaded led people around and and ushered the lines Mm -hmm. you know i did that the first year then the second year i did it where i was kind of like supervising those 
those kids and, you know, kids that were my the same age as me. And it was the year that uh, one of the, the biggest movie that came in there was this like movie called I Am a Sex Addict. What year was this? Mm, 2005, 2006. I, that's when was I, I was there in 2004. So yeah. do you know my friend Victor Lorenzo? The name sounds very familiar. Okay. Very, uh, so. Also a Long Island guy. Also worked there. Yeah. So uh, there was that movie. There was a Rosie Perez movie that came out. There was a couple other movies that really weren't that big because Tribeca Film Festival wasn't what it became over the years. At that time, it was still kind of early in its in its life cycle at that point. Yeah. And um, we had this one day where there was like a windstorm that was almost like mild hurricane and it was blowing the barricades, the police barricades <laughs> over. And I caught one in the back. Oh my and, God. And, and if you've ever seen those things, they hurt like hell. And it hit me pretty hard. Cause I was kind of shielding <sighs> other people from the wind and the thing came up and kind of caught me in the back. And I was okay at the time probably should have gone to a doctor but i didn't at the time because i was you know 22 years old and i was made of steel but now as an adult i'm like yeah that was probably not the best thing i could have done for myself oh and, my gosh and uh yeah that was my last year that i did it because i was just like it was not a rewarding job because no. the two years that i did the film festival i did not get to see one film really didn't see one. Oh, that sucks i got to yeah. see one <laughs> I, I got yeah. to see the movie Badass. Okay, I know that. I remember that Mario movie. Mario yeah. Van Peebles movie. Mm-hmm. That was a good one. Yeah. But yeah, it, it, it was like, that was, yeah, that was a very intense job. And I had one day where they were just running me around, like, all over the city, delivering packages, delivering this to people, delivering gift bags. And I was just having, like, the worst day. And then I got into the elevator at the office, you know, drenched in sweat. And... I step into the elevator. There's one guy in there, and it's Robert De Niro. Wow. And it's just he and I in the elevator. He's got the Meet the Fockers haircut because they were about to shoot the movie. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, and I'm just like, all right, I guess I guess this this industry is kind of fun sometimes. <laughs> that's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, so when I was working for the Weinstein Company, this is my last you know movie reference that I'll bring up. So do you remember the movie Fanboys? Yes, I saw it in theaters. Yeah, so I was involved in in some of the edits for that movie for the multiple recuts that they did for this movie yeah that went on forever i remember forever forever and so at the time they were they were shooting it on film editing it digitally dumping it back to film and then i had to bring the film stock for this one of the cuts to a post-production house that was doing some of the, the the 3d animation and some of the cgi work in it and they handed me the can and they're like, okay, you're going to go, you know, uptown to here and there and blah, blah, blah. I think it was going to nice shoes or something like that. Right. And so they handed me the can. They said, okay, here's your Metro card. Go on the subway and go bring this to nice shoes. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, I'm holding a feature film in my arms, dude. Like what? I was like, I'm not going to go on a subway. I ended up hailing a cab, taking the cab to the, the studio where I had to go to. And I'm like, here's the movie. It's like, this is the precious. Here you go. It's been taking five years to get to this point. Like, yeah, that was terrifying. But it was, it was a cool experience. That's crazy. Let me ask you this. Was there ever a version of that movie that worked? 
yes, there was a pre an earlier cut that I thought was much better than the final release. Like there's yeah. a, a longer version that's much much better. Um, it's you know, it's fine. It's it could have been a lot better, but it was just like it was just butchered in the editing, and they I don't know. It, it was a bummer because it's a good cast. They were, yeah. There was a, good, a lot of good jokes, and there's a lot of jokes that I remember seeing in the edits that never made it into the film, and that was kind of a bummer. That's a shame. Yeah. And that was a script that had been around for, I think, like 10 years before. Yeah, a long time. They even made a it. I remember reading time. about it like when I was in high school. Let's dive into our final segment. Now that we went on a full film tangent. Oh, my God. And, and, and listen, if you guys tune out at this point, that's fine. I understand. But I actually really enjoy this. This is kind of fun. And it shows the freewheeling nature of me. And so, like, you guys get a full picture of, like, okay, we have a structure. And believe me, we had a real serious structure. But then, at some point, I let it go off the rails. And it's fine. It's cool. <laughs> so, um, our last segment we're going to discuss uh, this episode is Punisher's Price Guide. Oh, yeah, right. And and so we're going to talk about Solar, Man of the Atom, number 10, with an all-black embossed cover that takes the number two spot in the top 10 chart. Since it is the first appearance of the hot, valiant character, Eternal Warrior, Stephen bought this back in the day as a collectible with no interest in reading it. You want to tell us why you bought this book? You know, I was thinking about that, and I'm certain it was because I read Wizard too much, and I was convinced that this was an important book, like, you know, the next Action Comics number one. And, yeah, you know, I was a kid that liked to read my comic books. I didn't like to keep them in the in the bag and board. But this was one that I kept bagged and boarded, and I don't know if I ever even opened it or read it. Like I was so certain that it was going to be a big deal that I kept it sealed. That's so thank you, wizard for nothing. Yeah, seriously. I mean, the, the, the character has a cool look to him. I do think it's got a cool look to him, but I, you know, I never read an issue. I do. I, though there's often times in this show where there's a character that I've never heard of until now, <laughs> this is a character that I did hear of just wasn't in my wheelhouse of reading it. Cause I wasn't really reading Valiant comics back then. Um, to this day, there's only you know I I you know I read Faith every once in a while. I think it's a cool story, but for the most part, I'm not a big Valiant guy. I just don't have the time to pick up other publications at times. Yeah, so, I'm so, with you. So Solar Number Ten is listed in the Wizard Price Guide at fifty nine dollars. Wow, that's pretty good. So currently on eBay, a loose First print copy sells for a whopping fifteen to twenty dollars. Which actually, if you know, I'm sure you probably paid for maybe two fifty three dollars at the time, maybe yeah. less. You know, it's still got some value, which is kind of cool. I mean, that's kind of neat. But again, how much of a market is it to sell it on eBay at this point? Like, who's really going to buy it? I don't know. It's cool to have a, as a collector. I think that's kind of neat. There is one guy on eBay selling it for nine hundred dollars. 
No way. Yeah, Are you nine, serious? It's a, it's a graded copy, 9.8, and he's selling it for $900 or best offer. So. Oh, good. Okay, I'll make you best offer. $15. <laughs> Seriously. Read the room, guy. Yeah, pal. Seriously. Oh, boy. So, aside from this, you know, also, can we talk about how graphic the Hustler cards are? First of all, what are the Hustler cards? In the in the section where they talk about trading cards, which we usually call Gambit's deck of cards. They have a whole section about Hustler trading cards is in, you know, Larry Flint's Hustler magazine. And they show the cards and they just kind of black out the nudity. They just, you know, put black bars and say censored. But could you imagine, like, this book is marketed to 12-year-olds. Right. What if your mom picks this up and is like, oh, what are you reading? And then they see that. That's your last Wizard magazine, kid. (laughs) Seriously. Uh, Yeah, so... I feel like, you know, these early issues of Wizard are still a little raw. And they're still yeah. kind of figuring it out. And that's one of those things where, as I was flipping through the pages, I was like, wait, what? Porn and Wizard? But, yeah. Wow, that's pretty weird. And honestly, folks, I don't think there's a better way to end this episode than Porn in Wizard? And on that note, Stephen... Thank you so much for joining me tonight and taking this journey to God knows where we went tonight. And it's going to be fun to edit, that's for sure. But as always, I want to thank the the Retro Network for hosting us on all of the platforms that we're hosted on. I want to tell everybody, check us out on Instagram at wizards underscore comics or at Twitter at wizards comics. And don't forget, always keep your books bagged and boarded. Thanks for listening, everybody. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.